Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is uh, October 2nd, 2015. It is a beautiful Friday. Um, Joining me here in our virtual studio from all across the planet, we have Tiffany, Erica, Doug, and Gabby. Uh, my name is Jonathan. Um, so we have a full complement of, uh, of hosts today. And we have a very special guest today, Yara Willard. Um, so um, I'm going to hand it off to Doug at this point to do introductions and uh, get everybody familiar with, with our guest, and then we'll go from there. Great. Okay. So, yeah, recently I was uh, fortunate enough to attend a training with um, Master Herbalist uh, Yara Willard, and hearing him speak, he just has a knowledge of herbs and uh, the natural world that's kind of unparalleled to anybody who I've ever had the opportunity to hear speak before. So I knew him that would would be great to get him on the show. Um, I'll just go through his bio here. Um, Yara was a master herbalist and the visionary of Harmonic Arts Botanical Dispensary on Vancouver Island. And uh, his website is uh, www.harmonicarts.ca. From an early age, he was raised in the way of natural medicine by herbalist parents. He graduated with a clinical herbalist diploma in 2005 and has been continually updating his knowledge base ever since. Yarrow is a highly edutaining, sorry, Yarrow is highly edutaining and shares a wealth of insights into ways to upgrade health and deepen our connection with the natural world. He regularly shares the Herbal Jedi Life Path through events, classes, blogs, his website, YouTube channel, and other media outlets. So, very fortunate to have you here with us today. Yarrow, how are you? I'm good. Great. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the video show with you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe we could just start off by asking you kind of, you know, I, I know in your, your bio there you say that you had herbalist parents, but so maybe that kind of answers this question, but how did, how did you get onto this path? How did you start as a herbalist? Yeah, well, both, um, as, as I said, my bio, I'm, I'm both of us, my parents were both herbalists at a young age, and we're really into natural medicine. And, you know, coming out of the 60s, they were, you know, idealists and had this idea and vision of doing that. And my father really took that to the next level, and he he wrote about 12 books on herbs and had a herbal school. Wow. And so as a child, I was doing a lot of herb walks and was part of that. So, you know, my first herb walk, I was five years old, telling people about yarrow, which is my namesake, and how that's a useful herbal medicine. And since then, I've you know, been through many different journeys, but came to a place of realizing, you know, this is really in alignment with where I want to go in my life, too. And I think people need to connect with nature in a deeper way. And so finding a profound way to do that helps heal us at a larger level. So, mm. yeah, being a herbalist has been a big piece of that. It kind of seems like you were, like, born to do this. In some ways, you know, the old tradition was that the children would follow down the lineage and, you know, you have your, like, group of blacksmiths or your, your group of seamsters, mm-hmm. whatever that might be. And in this case, um, working with herbal medicine has been a big piece of that. And my family, even my, my grandfather, um, my great-grandfather was a pharmacist back when pharmacy huh. was actually herbal medicine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's changed a lot now. It sure has. Yeah. So, so are, are there any whole... other people in your family, Yarrow, that are named after herbs? Yeah, well, I have a brother named Juniper, um, and actually oh. I, I have three three children myself. 
My daughter is named after one of my favorite medicines, although it's not a herb, it's a medicinal mushroom, reishi. So a daughter named oh. Reishi, and then two boys named Lyndon and Rowan. So they're two tree plants. So. Uh, and since you brought it up, what is the uh, the, the herbal use of uh, yarrow? All right, well, um, the Latin name of yarrow, so this, this plant goes back way, way back, and it's been around for a long time and used in the Western herbal medicine path. And the Latin name of yarrow is Achillea milfolium. And so Achilles is after Achilles, the Greek warrior. And it's not only a warrior's herb, it's also a women's herb. So it's used in both ways. But the old legend, I'll give it really short, goes that, you know, Achilles was invincible and his army was not. And so he was continually battling in these um, battles that were really hard for them to, to battle in. And he was losing a lot of men. So he asked Chiron, his sort of herbal mentor, which is a uh, centaur um, from the Greek tradition, um, to give him a plant that would help him heal the wounds of his warriors. And he gave him yarrow. So across any battlefield you may fight, there will be yarrow. And the leaves will stop bleeding. The roots uh, will numb pain or analgesic. Uh, the tea of the flowers and the flowering tops will help you sweat out any kind of fever, especially the infection season. Wow. And it has many other uses along those lines. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a fun herb. It, yeah. You know, it stands about 30 inches tall, um, but also is a really good women's herb, so helpful with menstrual cramping and pain that way. Mm-hmm. Any kind of pain, it's quite bitter, um, but it will help move toxins out of the body and dispel all that type of stuff. Oh. I wish I had that kind of story for my name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's something about Doug. <laughs> well, apparently it means uh, dark blue or black water in Gaelic. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'll just mention this here. If anybody wants to call in, if they have any questions for Yarrow, um, the number is uh, 718-508-9499. And that's actually um, above the slideshow on the uh, the Blog Talk radio page that you're on right now if you're listening live. Um, and I think there's also a Skype button there, so you can possibly call in with Skype, although I'm not totally sure how that works. Um, but you could probably play around with it and uh, get through. Okay. So, Yaro, um, how maybe you could talk a little bit about your approach to herbalism and what uh, maybe how your approach kind of differs from other herbalists or what you try to achieve with the uh, with harmonic arts. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, and this, you know, this might resonate with other herbalists as well because there is a sort of a a theme of what we call what I like to call coherence in the universe, which is in the flow. It's kind of like the bio, it says that herbal Jedi life path. Really what that is, is finding that like flow within the connection at a deeper level. that is a sense of purpose and in natural order in the divine of that way. So that might sound a little esoteric, but really what it comes down to is um, when we get in the flow in our lives, and this could be with herbal medicine or with anything, we see that things and doors and pathways open up a lot more and we get a little deeper mm-hmm. connection to our sense of purpose or our sense of drive in our life. So my really, I mean, and a lot of herbalists will, will resonate with this, that it's, it's really a preventative medicine. It's really the best, most ideal way to work with plant medicine. Mm. Now, of course, there are some herbs that have really profound effects, mm. but really my approach would be to try and bring people back into the flow and let their body's innate ability to heal um, do a lot of the other work. So in that sense, 
I like to think of plant medicine as almost like education. You know how we might read a book or listen to this radio show, for example, to learn things? Well, when it comes to plants and our body, the way we learn is reading the chemistry and reading the way in which they show up in the world. So, so in a sense, um, it's not so much that this specific chemical has this specific action. It's almost as though we're reading a novel. Every time we take a herb into our body, we're ingesting all of this information and our body recognizes and reads that and interprets it and helps itself correct or course correct its way of showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. So this might you know, have negative effects as well if we are consuming too high of a volume of something and not really listening to the way the body's responding. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to this path, it's really about learning how to listen to your body systems better and start to connect deeper within your own um, senses so that you can educate yourself properly. Gerald, can wow. you give an example of how you listen to herbs or like maybe your own personal experience yeah. with a certain herb, what that looks like? Sure. Okay. Um, so first off, we have five senses, right? We also have extrasensory perceptions that we're not fully aware of, but let's just stick with the five senses. So, um, First one, obviously, the easiest one to recognize plant medicine with is a sense of taste. Mm. And if we start to correlate that back to some of the other um, systems of herbal medicine, specifically the Chinese system, they've been, you know, doing herbs for thousands of years. And, you know, 4,000 years ago, they started writing down the different effects of herbs. So we've got really good what we call mapping systems to understand how the tastes correlate to different parts of the body. So... It's an easy way, like, for example, in our society right now, and I'm, I'm kind of digressing a little bit, but I will get back to that. Um, sweet and fat and salty, these kind of flavors we are really attracted to. And so we have a lot of um, excessive amounts of that in our social structure right now in the way that we eat our foods. And what happens is that those were originally built into us in order to um, help us be able to get past those hunter-gatherer years where there wasn't very much fat, sweet, and salty to a degree. Mm. So we would use those as precious storage energy. But that's essential and important. Nowadays that we have so much of that, we have excessiveness. And, you know, the, the sweet is really the spleen channel in the Chinese medicine. And it's the summertime. It's like this time of year where we would have that, where we have the berry bush kind of thing. Mm. The salty is really the kidney or the the um, mineral channel, and that's often the winter time they correlate that to. So in the Chinese system, just to, there's this sense of um, various flavors for various seasons, and various organs that they attach to, and various meridian channels that they flow through. So our body is wired with this kind of perception where, when I take something bitter, for example, it might make me shiver a little bit, and this is going to affect the liver. And the reason why we don't aren't attracted to bitter so much is because there are lots of bitter compounds that are toxic. Mm. Though bitter is really cooling and will calm down the liver, especially when we have that heat and inflammation and aggravation, it's something we'd use in smaller amounts. So when I put a herb in my mouth, I want to sort of look for those flavors. What are those flavors coming to me as, as a first level of interpretation from my own body? Um, and then I might start to correlate that to, okay, so I've got a herb that's slightly bitter, but there's a bit of a sweetness, and, you know, that bitter kind of rises in my mouth, giving me almost a spicy flavor mm. at the back. And so 
How's that going to affect the different meridian channels? Is this going to be something that's good for my liver? Uh, spicy is kind of the lungs. And then that sweetness is nutritive. So here I go. I have a plant that's going to be slightly nutritive, um, going to help tone my liver and help get inflammation and congestion out of my lung area. So that's just one way we might flavor ones. Also, when we approach plant, there's something called a doctrine of correspondence. And um, that is really a relationship of things in the, in the universe, or things of how they might correspond. So a good example is ginkgo. They call it ginkgo biloba. And now I know we need to use a really concentrated extract of ginkgo, but most people know ginkgo as something good for the memory. And what's interesting is that it looks like a little brain. It has this biloba kind of mm. look to it. So that's what we call a doctrine of correspondence. And that's something that we have where various things will correspond. Like one of my favorite herbs is a herb called Devil's Club. And it gets that name, obviously, because it's, you know, something to be wary of, Devil's Club, right? It has these spikes on it, these big, bright spikes. And there, you know, if you get one in you, the wound will fester because they have a chemical in them. And so you get a little bit of an infection. So it's something that we are really careful of. But that doctrine of correspondence says, okay, this is a very protective plant, right? Because it's, it's got this extra protection on it. Now, this is a native plant from the West Coast, and it happens to be related to ginseng in that sense. And so it's not only protective, but also in that whole Aurelia family that the ginsengs are part of, there is some aspect of tonic and nutritive to them. They all have that. When you start to get into the inner bark of this, there's almost a sweet flavor to it. And what we learn is that you know the native cultures of this part of the world, they have a really hard time processing sugars. And so obviously alcohol has been a problem as well as sugar metabolism of all the conventional foods. So you get a lot higher volume of diabetes. Now Devil's Club, one of their sacred herbs, happens to be the best herb for diabetes. It's really good for blood sugar stabilizing. So again, this correspondence where you see this protective, nutritive plant that it helps correspond and help with their blood sugar thing. And you can, you can taste that in the nutritiveness of the plant, and you can see that when you visually see the protective qualities of it. And if you look at where it grows, so then we might look at the bioregions, and you're like, okay, this plant here grows in these valleys at the bottoms of the mountains, which means all the runoff, all the energy from the mountain is in this nutritive pool at the bottom of the mountain. Mm -hmm. so, so that's how I would like to approach kind of observing, sensing, and connecting with plants. Now, of course, we could read a whole ton of information on Devil's Club and find out that, yes, we're correct in our sensory perception, but if we get that initial connection, it's much more profound and educational for our bodies, not just our minds. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty amazing how much you actually are connecting. Like how many dots kind of you're connecting with uh, with these plants, like you bring in where they grow, how they've been used traditionally, what their flavor is, you know, the whole uh, correspondence of, uh, you know, physical properties and how that kind of metaphorically ties to their use. That's, it's really amazing. I, I don't, it's not something you, you kind of encounter that often. Well, yeah, I think that that was kind of my main um, passion when it came to herbal medicine was 
starting to learn these mapping systems. Well, like I said, my parents were herbalists, but you know, my, I would say also maybe my mom was a bit of a witch in some ways. <laughs> um, but she, she really, really believed in astrology and really went through this feng shui pathway where she's learned a lot more about how the flow in the, from the Chinese perspective is. And so these, what we call um, holographic mapping systems, which are all these different mapping systems that overlay on natural flow, once, like not once, so this is the golden rule about all these kind of map systems, like astrology as well as an example. Mm-hmm. But I'll give you a couple other examples and then I'll touch in on that. Um, things like there's foot reflexology. In Chinese medicine, there's pulse. There's also tongue. There's also iridology in the Western tradition. There's also face diagnosis. You know, a good example of that is people love the Superman, but they're skeptical of the Joker chin. You know, it's a specific <laughs> shape mm-hmm. of the structure that, oh, that must be conniving, that, that pointy chin, huh. whereas that big broad chin must be powerful and protective. So um, we get these kind of already, they're overlapped into us, but as soon as we develop a bit of a mapping system for them, we can interpret them in different ways. But the golden rule is you can't rely on any one mapping system because mm. all of them are generalizations and none of them are exactly accurate. So what you need to start to do is develop a few different mapping systems. And the more you get the more you get a whole bunch of yes, 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 then the more you can trust that that is kind of within that flow. So if it tastes a certain way, smells a certain way, looks a certain way, then it's a for sure, for sure, for sure, not just mm. a for sure, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I was really a buff on these, and that was kind of one of my favorite, but I found to be the most juicy stuff in herbal medicine was learning the interpretation and diagnostics of various systems. Yeah. Well, that's really fascinating. It's like kind of a, a different approach to knowledge than the, the Western um, approach, which is entirely like reductionist and taking something, taking it apart, finding out it's, uh, it's kind of the, the, the active constituents and kind of analyzing those. And, you know, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies will then take those and try and patent them. And, and you know, they're, they're really trying to get down to the one thing that kind of makes this herb or, or anything really um, something medicinal. And it, it is such kind of a refreshing approach to hear, because I know you take that sort of thing into account when you're looking at herbs, but that it's only kind of one, mm-hmm. one point on, on the entire map. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like me saying, hey, you know what? You have one skill. You're a radio show host. That's it. You don't know anything else. You can't do anything else. You better just, you know, be doing nothing while you're not doing this. (laughs) (laughs) That seems so silly when we put that in a human perspective. Right. But we do that with plants all the time. Hmm. (laughs) Yarrow, can you explain a little bit what you mean by nutritive... Does that mean the the herb or the plant has nutrient properties? And also, if you could go into a little bit of what you mean when you say it tones certain organs or certain herbs are tonifying. For sure. Yeah, so those are kind of herbal nerdy words. And there is a good (laughs) glossary of herbal nerdy words you can find. One thing I just just touched before that is um, a lot of this stuff you can find out on what we call Uncle Google or just dialing your pocket dot, which is your cell phone <laughs> way, um, website link. And a lot of it's really simple and easy, but what you need to just think about is that you actually want to learn and look at it. So all these mapping systems that I talked about, if you Google any of them, you can get images of them, print them off, have them at home, look at them. There's all kinds of that information. And same with these herbal nerdy words. So 
nutritive is kind of almost like sweet and giving calorie content in the sense of it's got that like giving more nourishment to the body back. So most of our food, despite some of it not having a lot of minerals and vitamins, depending on what we're eating, is kind of has that nutritive flavor where we can tell that this is something when we taste it that is not going to harm us. It's not going to tone us too much. It's going to just give us a little bit more calorie content and um, energy. So sweet has a nutritive type flavor. Um, mm-hmm. When I say the word tonic, tonic is actually a, you know, it's, it's kind of an overused word, but I mean, obviously from tonic water and all these other tonic things, but what it means is to tighten the tissues and to tone the tissues. So if we have something that's a lung tonic, it's going to help tone the lungs and help us expel mucus. If we have a stomach tonic, it's going to help tone those stomach muscles, but also um, the stomach wall and lining and help it strengthen itself. So tonic is almost like that workout herb that's kind of toning the body. I'm a big fan of tonics in general or plants that have some form of tonic properties because I feel like our bodies get a little lazy and a little sluggish as we move through life. And, you know, in this Western world, it's easy to do that. We spend a lot of time sitting. We spend a lot of time eating sweetie, fatty type foods. And um, as much as we all want to say we exercise, it's really hard for a lot of us to even find the time to exercise properly. Right. So a tonic can help an organ or body system do its job better. Yeah, we'll help tone it. So it's not going to have a... Mm-hmm. Necessary and tonic. One of the main things is it's usually not a stimulating effect, where it's going to overstimulate it in one direction. Tonic, in the Chinese sense, means more almost dual directional, where it's going to tighten it to to a point, but hopefully not past that point. Okay. And so you know that leads me to my favorite kind of herbs, mm. which are those type of herbs. Can you give us an example? Yeah, well, actually, you know, lots of examples of them. Um, but so, for example, um, and in, the, in this system, herbs like um, maca is slightly is nutritive and tonic in that sense. Mm. It's going to tone some of the endocrine glands and tone the adrenals and tone the hormonal systems. Herbs like ashwagandha is another one that's slightly tonic in that sense. Or it's, again going to tone um, or give us more stamina and tone the body. Herbs that have a little bit of a, just a little hint of bitter to them Mm. can have a little bit of tonic. Um, Liver tonics would be things like dandelion. So you guys all probably know dandelion Mm. (laughs) and burdock. But dandelion is a great tonic because it's not just a tonic of the liver. It also helps with the kidneys and also helps with the blood. So it's a really hard-working, slow-moving herb. It doesn't have a fast effect where it's, like, extra stimulating, um, but it does have this, like, slow tonic effect where it'll help filter and clean the blood, help tone the blood vessels, move it to the liver, tone the liver, move it out to the kidneys, and dispel toxins from the body. So mm. it's a great herb, and it's probably one of the most common herbs in the Western world. And, again, if you look at that doctrine of correspondence, it tells us that, Ah, you know, the people with dandelions in their yard, they're probably the people that need them the most. Mm. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's a really so fascinating people are concept. Always, 
Get rid of the dandelions in their gardens. They're doing themselves a disservice. They're throwing away good medicine. (laughs) For sure. And probably those people who are really trying to get them out of the yards are actually the ones that need them more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Like, I think that's a really fascinating concept that these herbs just kind of, they show up in your life when it's something that you need. I know for me, at one point, um, I was going through some lung stuff. Um, I had just kind of started a, a, a fairly rigorous exercise uh, routine and uh, was having a lot of trouble with, like, catching my breath. And oddly enough, uh, mullen just showed up in my garden. Mm. Uh, I didn't plant it. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting it or anything. It just showed up at one point. And, you know, researching a little bit, I, I figured out that, that mullen was actually very good for the, the lungs. Yeah, it sure is. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's it's neat how they do that. Like, we have another saying in herbal medicine that I I really a herbalist taught me, and I thought was just awesome, which is the people plants. And so we call these the people plants, and they're the ones that kind of show up and are around us. And as much as we want to use these exotic herbs like the ginsengs and the ashwagandhas, mm-hmm. um, it's actually the people plants that we should be focusing on most. Why? Because they purposefully are around areas where we've disturbed the soil. So these are the plants that are actually calling us at some level. Mm. And they're the ones that show up in our mm. gardens. So they're the ones that show up in our um, empty lots on the sides of, the ones that show up on the sides of the road. Now, obviously, we want to be careful not to use contaminated toxic herbs, i.e. something on the side of a major highway it might not be <laughs> appropriate for us to be harvesting. Um, well, definitely isn't appropriate for us to be harvesting, but... But these plants that keep showing up around us often mm. have the best medicine for us. Mm. Yeah. That's great. It's a, it's a neat concept to me because, again, as I was talking about how we educate ourselves via the chemistry of the herbs, the ones that are seasonally appropriate and seasonally near our area, they've also learned how to work in that area. So they help train us, oh, you know, this is how we function in Toronto, for example, compared to this is how we function in southeast China, you know? So so if we've got a herb that's in our area, it's going to give us a little more of a connection to to the, the area that we're in already. And that brings us again back to that concept I said of coming back into coherence with our natural world. Mm. Yeah, this is uh, Jonathan. I just have a question. I was wondering if maybe you could address um, now, you know, in our our modern age and with all of the uh, kind of glut of information on the Internet um, and, you know, blogs, uh, things like this that may may or may not be expert sources of information. um, Can you speak to what may be some of the common misunderstandings about herbs or maybe some kind of disinformation that's being put out there and what people should be wary of? Yeah, sure. Sure. It is, is, and you brought up something good there um, to kind of recognize is that this has become fashionable and um, herbal medicine is the new magic bullet, we call it. And Mm -hmm. we take the magic bullet concept from pharmaceuticals where it's like, give me this little pill and you'll be all better. You know, mm. this idea of, of um, the super fit, the thing that will make me, you know, immortal or whatever that might be. <laughs> in, in my own, in that own sort of exaggerated form of that. But um, 
what herbs do is, again, more of a slow-moving process. Now, there are some that are very stimulating in one setting. Like a good example is if, I got a, if I'm at the very beginning of a cold, um, I might take echinacea, and everyone knows echinacea. Not useful once I've had it for a longer period of time. Once I've had this cold for like a week, the echinacea no longer is doing its job. But at that first stage of the cold, that echinacea can have a really powerful stimulating effect. So I want to use it like that. Like most of the bottles, you'll get a tincture and say, oh, and just so you know, echinacea should be taken in a tincture, not a, not a powder form, because the active compounds become more bioavailable that way. And they might say two droppers full or, you know, 20, 30 drops. Now, to me, that does nothing. That's very little when it comes to a stimulating herb like echinacea. If I'm going to get a common cold, and I know it's not going to work for me in a week after I have the cold, I'm taking much bigger volumes. I'm taking that dropper off, and I'm swigging the bottle because that's the only way I'm going to get a real um, immune-stimulating effect. So sometimes with herbs, you need to take bigger volumes than is recommended. And then this puts people in this a little bit of a fear thing because we're used to these um, pharmaceuticals where, you know, if you double-dosed, or you're going to have a major effect on the body. Whereas these herbs are a lot gentler than that. And you can often do that um, one to two doses above and beyond what it is without having a negative effect. It's really the long-term continual use of them that can start to cause a problem. In that sense of with any herb, it doesn't matter what it is, I would recommend that you always take a break. Your body will respond to the herb more effectively than if you keep going continually. So even if I was thinking this ginkgo biloba for my brain, just as an example, I might want to take it five days on, two days off, or I might want to take it three weeks on, one week off. I'll have a better effect from it. Even if it is a totally safe and gentle herb, I still want to take it in these cyclic rhythms mm. in that sense. So misinformation around herbs is partly around dosing, um, in that sense that there is obviously a safe level, but at the same time, if it's a pretty safe herb and you have a specific thing you want to work on, you're going to need a lot more of it than may be recommended. Hmm. And then also, um, there's a lot of different ways in which herbs can help you that are not necessarily what we call a physiological effect. So the physiological effect of the echinacea might be, I took a big swig of that tincture instead of a dropper full. Hmm. Um, now, if I want to have a little different type of effect, herbs work on a much more subtle level, too. Like I was saying, how they educate the body via the chemistry. Well, we're quite sensitive when we take very, very small doses of things as well. Hmm. And this affects us on a different level, hence homeopathics, you know, or uh, flower essences, like Dr. Hmm. Bach's um, flower essences. These are all subtle, subtle medicines that affect us on a gentle gentle level and you know the flowers are said to affect our emotional body the um homeopathics are said to affect kind of the mental body or this sense of things uh they seem to work better on animals and children who are more sensitive to this as we get older one of our major health issues is that we slightly crystallize we crystallize in our thoughts we crystallize in our muscles our joints so staying flexible you've all met that person who's like 45, 50, and yet they seem like they're only 20 because they're so flexible in their emotional bodies. So, mm -hmm. um, so, so one of the things to help us 
move out of that is to take very, very subtle, small doses of herbs. Hmm. So I might take that echinacea and I might take one drop of it just to kind of feel that, roll it around my mouth, pucker a little bit, and get a sense of, does this have a medicinal benefit? And I would say it does in the sense of it's made me feel totally different. That really, really small dose will make me feel different than I felt before if I'm listening close enough. So those are some of those. Um, the other thing is that herbs are right now being marketed to people's body image and stuff. So a lot of the most popular herbs are weight gainer, testosterone herbs, or slim down herbs for women. This is the wrong approach for herbal medicine entirely. Mm-hmm. We're taking a Western two-dimensional approach and trying to put it onto a four, maybe five-dimensional world that the herbal mm-hmm. medicine can actually expand into. So... I, I caution anybody who is taking herbs just for like slimming or gaining um, or just for beauty or just for, because you know, it's the wrong approach. All like holistic medicine teaches us it's from an internal place, not from an external place, as well as um, we have natural cycles. For example, right now we're moving into the fall and the fall is pack it on cycle. You should be packing on a little extra weight. Mm. You will have a healthier less sick winter if you're kind of taking in the harvest, so to speak, and the spring is cleansing it off. So you're going to have more effect if you're cleansing and losing weight in that time of the spring where we naturally would be eating bitter greens. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I'm, I'm just kind of rambling on here, but that's one of the things about um, it that we should also recognize is what types of foods and what types of um, things would be available during the times of seasons that we're eating. So seasonally eating the right things is also educating the body similar to how herbs might do. Well, that's really fascinating. And I don't think you're rambling at all. I think this is all really fascinating information. Um, mm-hmm. I had a question. You mentioned tinctures. Um, some of our mm-hmm. audience might not really know what those are. And maybe you could go right. into that and maybe talk about the different methods of taking herbs. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So... Again, um, there are lots of different ways you can take plant medicines. Now, a lot of people probably, the easiest is a capsule because um, we don't taste it and recognize it. This is my least favorite way to take a herb. Mm. Even when I get given a capsule, I usually open up the capsule. It just tastes a little bit so my body can recognize what plant medicines I'm putting in it, and then I might take the capsule. And I, I recommend people do that so they can inform themselves at some level of what they're actually consuming. Otherwise, it's kind of like double-blinded, placebo-controlled capsule. <laughs> we, don't, we don't actually know. Our body's not... The stomach doesn't have the same sensitive organelles as the tongue does. Thousands of generations have taught us that the tongue is a used thing <laughs> to know what we're putting in our body. So, um, so we've honed that organelle to work that way. So in that sense, I really believe tasting medicines is the best thing. Now, that brings me to a couple other methods, which would be, say, tea. And there's a couple of different ways to do tea, which is um, if we have a hard root or a hard berry or a hard mushroom, we might want to do what's called that decoction method, which is similar to the whole double-double boil and trouble kind of where we've got this big pot and we're decocting those herbs. We need to break down those lignin-filled, fiber-filled type herbs so we can extract the medicine. Now, if it's got a lot of volatile oils, boiling it up like that is going to 
lose a lot of that volatile oil medicine. So for those leafy greens and those flowers and those light, gentle herbs, you want to do um, an infusion, which is similar to dipping a tea bag in a cup. Although I prefer to use whole, loose herbs versus tea bags. Why? Because if you go further back into the industry, you see that tea bag cut is really a like B or C grade of that herb. Mm-hmm. And once you've exposed it down to that small size, it's oxidizing and it's losing potency quite fast. Mm-hmm. They say once you grind a herb into a powder, within 24 hours, depending on the powder, it'll lose up to half of its value. Mm-hmm. So once we grind these things down into this powder, now for some herbs we have no choice. For example, turmeric. We can't necessarily eat big turmeric chunks. Mm-hmm. And it's so potent already that you're going to get a lot of good use out of turmeric powder. But once we've exposed the surface area on plants, they start to oxidize. So tea bag cut, not quite as good as a nice leafy green cut. Plus, once we see the herbs, we can tell whether it's good quality or just some brown herb matter that's been sitting in a warehouse for five, six years. Mm. So it's, it's hard at a consumer level to know that stuff uh, until we actually see what's in front of us. And we can use our eyes to observe it. Which, so anyway, that's a little bit about those kind of herbs. Now, tinctures, which is what your actual question was, <laughs> they are an alcohol extract of a herb. Now, the reason that we like tinctures is because they, they end up pulling the best chemistry out of the plants. Alcohol is a, is a universal solvent for a lot of different types of medicines, a lot of different types of compounds that are in the plants. And it also means that the fibrous part of the plants we then are, are not consuming. So we're pulling out those, those active compounds. And either, you know, I, I don't want to use too many herbal nerdy words, but there are things like the, some of the branch polysaccharides, the phenols, the triterpenes, the alkaloids, the different kinds of chemistry that are extracted. Even fats and resins, to a degree, will come out in alcohol. So this way we have, now, from a herbalist perspective, this is great because you know, if you, you know, were a kid and you tried your, you know, teenager trying your parents, you know, 20-year-old vodka that they never drank, it still <laughs> tastes great, right? So we've got this huge shelf life on tinctures where it's going to last up to 20 years. So we might have harvested something this summer in the heat of the summer, perfect time, and put it into alcohol. We now have 20 years worth of medicine. Mm-hmm. And most tincture companies will give like a five-year shelf life on their tinctures, but know that these are good for a lot longer. Hmm. It's really just for recall purposes and for sometimes label-changing purposes that tincture companies do that. Um, but in that sense, we've got a medicine locked in there for a lot longer and is very bioavailable. Now, the thing about tea and tinctures is that that liquid bypasses the digestive process. So when we take a powdered herb or we chew on a, on a herb in our food, we have to digest it. And most of us have compromised digestion, whereas tinctures become blood within five minutes. So all of a sudden, you've got this quick-acting delivery mechanism. So I, I guess I would give that um, another you know, brain hunker for food to thought is this idea of things that are good delivery mechanisms for mm-hmm. medicine. So alcohol happens to be one. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is so does smoke, <laughs> so does sugar. And so does caffeine. <laughs> These interesting handles and vices that we have as a society actually are not really medicines in themselves. This is a brain hook. They might happen to be 
delivery mechanisms for other medicines if we so choose to use them. So, you know, Native people would use different herbs as a herbal smoke where they would bring things into the lungs and quite quickly would move into the lungs. Things like coffee or caffeine can be used as a good delivery mechanism for things like medicinal mushrooms, for example. You get a more effect out of pointing them into a caffeinated beverage that's going to shoot right into the body quite quickly than you would just eating them as on their own. Hmm. Um, things like sugar, sweet, is another one that penetrates deep into the body. So we might make herbal honeys or infuse them like syrups. We might do like a herbal syrups that way. Hmm. Um, and alcohol is tinctures in that sense. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Since you brought up smoke, maybe I'll ask you this. Um, we had a program a little while ago where we interviewed a, an author named Richard White who was talking about tobacco and how a lot mm -hmm. of the, the case against tobacco is actually unfounded. Um, wh what are your feelings on it? I mean, I know it's like in traditional cultures they use it kind of as a medicinal, uh, but in this day and age it seems to really be uh, demonized. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's really a case against being out of balance. Is really what it is. It's not a case against tobacco. Tobacco just happens to be the one that shows us how out of balance really works and how hard that can be on the body when we come out of balance. And it's not something that should, for one, our lungs are sensitive. And what causes disease is inflammation in the body. And lungs are easily inflamed. So putting any kind of smoke into the lungs for long periods of time is going to cause that kind of inflammation. You'll see the same, maybe not exactly the same, but similar issues that happen with people who smoke other, you know, maybe not so legal type smokes. <laughs> um, they're going to get similar kind of, oh, they get sick quite a bit, heavy breathing, inability to, uh, weakness in the muscles and lack of oxygen flow to the body. These are some of the classic things against tobacco. Obviously, you're starting to get things like lung cancers and much more extreme I think a lot of that actually has to do with some of the additives mm -hmm. and, again, being out of balance with, with smoke in general. Mm. If you look back to where tobacco smoke came from, the native kind of ceremonial smokes, it wasn't as though they recommended that they did this every day. And, in fact, they had health issues for people who became too out of balance with tobacco themselves. It's not as though that was something that was accepted in many of the traditional societies. It was something more for bringing um, a space of equals. So I like to think about, you know, people who go out and party and drink and smoke, what happens is is that the alcohol brings them kind of closer in a sense of that they feel a little freer and uninhibited, and the smoke helps keep them a little further away and more protected. So it's like a smoke screen with this, like, uninhibitedness. Mm. Hence why people get addicted to that type of energy. Mm. Doesn't make it healthy at all only allows them to have a pressure valve from things that are deeper down inside that they're not really able to bring up in their normal everyday settings, mm -hmm. whatever that might be. Tobacco smoke has a similar thing where we have creating the smoke screen of protection in the sense that people use it often, you know, originally tobacco smokers in high school, if that's where they started, are usually some of the more sensitive kids, some of the kids that um, almost that, that protection feels good to them because there's a lot of pressure. So if we scale that back and look at how that might become a medicine instead of uh, a bad thing, we can see that possibly in a social setting, 
where we're coming in a group of equals, this might be something that could be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Though when it becomes out of balance and it's something we just crave and want to do all the time, it's, it's obviously not bringing us back into flow. And I, I'd like to just kind of bring up another one quick concept that I think is important to everyone. Every single person on the planet wants one thing. And there's only one thing that we all want. You might think there's always other things we want. We all want this one same thing. Every person wants to feel better. That's mm-hmm. all we want. There's not one person out there that doesn't want to just, just feel better. So we find different ways of feeling better and thinking we're feeling better and looking towards feeling better. And that might be like a break. Oh, we get this little treat, you know, 15-minute break. Ah, oh, I deserve this. Mm-hmm. And we might find the wrong thing to fill that break with. But ultimately, we want the exact same thing as the guy next to us. And that is, we all want to feel better. So there's lots of ways to find that. And when we move out of habitual uh, little treats and little breaks, whether it's a, a little cookie or a little tobacco or a little alcohol at the end of the day, whatever those little treat breaks might be, we see that there's an easier, deeper, more profound way that we can start to feel better by actually taking care of ourselves and listening to our bodies and connecting with the natural world. Yeah, we have a question from the chat room. It's about aromatherapy. You know, how about the sense of smell with aromatherapy? How does that specifically communicate with the body? And in what ways is best utilized? Yeah, okay, great question. So aromatherapy. Obviously, the olfactory glands in the nose are the quickest delivery mechanism into the brain. So they are the fastest way into our limbic nervous system. Um, we often are triggered with sense of smell of various things. So if you had a certain smell when you were growing up, you smell that again, and it brings you back to that time of your life when you were growing up. So we're often, we hold a certain body memory with smell. So it can be really quite therapeutic that way. As well as we have things like, you know, eucalyptus oil is a good example of something that you, you put your head under a, a hot bowl of water with a couple of drops of eucalyptus and a towel over top, do like a steam. It's amazing how that will clean out the sinuses, you know, so and how it will help heal. I have, a, I have my only pet peeves with aromatherapy, and I, I maybe we'll just touch on those, is that... Um, I think it's kind of overused a little bit and it's, it's sometimes so powerful that it's masking the, the other more subtle sense mm. as well as I'm not so sure on large scale consumerism and aromatherapy on how ethical that really is. Mm. When we look at some of the things like rose oil, which is so beautiful, such a nice fragrance and I, I love it. But I also realize that that's hundreds of acres of rose in that, you know, in that batch of rose oil. Mm. So it brings me back to other things like people are concerned about, say, for example, animal meats consuming large volumes of land mass versus plant foods. And so I think, well, you know, wait a minute, like how is aromatherapy consuming large amounts of plant or of of land mass versus taking a tea or a tincture? Mm. So those are my own ethical things, but it's a powerful medicine and has a real strong value for our, our um, senses, I just think that it might be one of those ones that's slightly overused in some senses. And if we are going to work with aromatherapy, 
my recommendation is to do it really lightly and to not over mask and over stimulate our senses too much. Mm. Very so interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Chipmunks, I don't, I'm like, like the um, eucalyptus oil example I use, like a specific thing for a specific purpose, not just always um, putting a lot of, of oils on us, because then our senses become lazy, just like our digestion becomes lazy when we um, take a lot of digestive enzymes all the time. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's really fascinating stuff. Um, we had a question um, where kind of thinking about what uh, what different stuff we could ask you about. And there was some uh, discussion on the difference between different parts of a plant. So like using the leaf versus using the root and how in some plants, you know, one part of it might be toxic versus other parts that are medicinal. Y- any comments on that? For sure. Um, yeah, there, there are definitely differences in the different parts of the plant. Um, in general, we'll see that each part of the plant kind of, just like everything else in nature, like each part of a human is quite different too. Um, you know, like my foot can only do what my foot can do. <laughs> but um, So with plants, we want to look back to their own almost physiology of like what is the purpose of the leaf versus the purpose of the root. And that's how it might have some, we can kind of start to correlate its benefits. Now, when you get to toxic parts versus non-toxic parts, that that becomes a little different, and you do have to be careful. There aren't that many extremely toxic plants, mm-hmm. but there definitely are some that have really toxic parts to them. So, like, arnica is a good example. Well, arnica flowers are quite toxic, mm-hmm. and yet used externally, no problem. Um, but flowers are capturing the sun of the... Well, the leaves are capturing the sun. The flowers are kind of the, the sexual parts of the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the roots are more of that grounding and nutritive and storage parts of the plants. So almost like the leaves are kind of like our lungs and skin of the plant. They're the breathing parts of the plant. The flowers are like our genitalia or our sexual reproductive organelles. Mm. The roots are kind of like our store, our stomach. Well, not, I don't know if it's the stomach because the stomach's really inside us, but that storage of nutritive parts. So almost our our fat tissues and our spleen and some of our storage liver type functions. So we'll often see a lot of liver medicines are root medicines. We'll often see a lot of um, medicines that work on the sexual reproductive plate might be berries or flowers or fruits type thing. And we'll often see, and then that's very also like, that's kind of really generalizing. Um, but each part has a different function in that sense. Uh, although each plant is going to be quite unique. So I guess I'll touch on one thing that I find that I'm really getting into these days, and that's plant pollens. Mm. I really like the pollens of plants, and I'm finding that these are the most subtle, precious compounds that a plant might make. So every time a plant's in pollen, I'll go and just take some of those little um, the antlers or the little filaments, the stamen, off of it and just nibble on those. And just how does that feel? different from consuming the whole plant. Hmm. I think that that's the plant steroids or the plant sterols or the the kind of hormonal building blocks that plants might have are in those pollens. Hmm. And I think in our society right now, we have a real endocrine imbalance. This is our biggest, one of our biggest imbalances right now is the endocrine system is all wired wrong. 
we're you know we stay up at wrong hours we have we just learn and flow and so that really affects our our thyroid our pituitary our um adrenals and all the other ones the hypothalamus the, the pineal gland and all these thyroid kind of um hormonal systems the thing about them is they're kind of like radio transceivers and they pick up what's being stimulated from outside of us and inside of us. And so they're the first ones to kind of go out of whack and then they affect the whole rest of the metabolism of the body. So I feel like giving them the best building blocks is one of my favorite approaches right now. Mm. Hence why I'm getting into nibbling on pollens. Most pollens are very nutritive to bring that word back in and um, quite safe. So there aren't that many plants that you could sit in your backyard, nibble on a little, you know, dandelion flower head and try to suck that back. There's not going to be a lot of pollen on there, but you're going to get a little bit. Hmm. Um, yeah. So with toxic plant parts, it's a little different. Well, you have certain ones, the roots, it's the more concentrated pieces, but they're going to be more likely to be more toxic versus the uh, less concentrated pieces because plants store energy. So, more likely the roots that are going to be stronger medicine in general in plants. Hmm. Yeah. I have a question, Yarrow. Coming back to those pollens, is saffron an example of a pollen that you know, people saffron are interested is, in? Eating? I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's the stamen. It's a very um, strong, strong one. I mean, it's probably one of the most expensive herbs on the world market. I think it ranges around like $4,000 a pound or a kilo. Wow. <laughs> so, mm. you know, for a saffron. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely, um, but you only need a tiny, tiny bit. And so that's that's a plant that's concentrated um, quite a strong energy in that, that um, pollen. One of the ones that I really like to work with that's around our part of the world that's easy to get a lot of is tree pollens. So um, you can get a lot of tree pollens quite easily. Uh, the one that's become the most popularized and is shown to have some of the strongest nutritive benefits are, is the pine pollen off of the pine trees. Now, the season for trees is really only like two weeks long. So if you have pine trees or some other tree that goes into pollen like that, the reason why pine pollen is so um, becoming more popularized is because you can get a huge amount of pollen. Like a big pine forest will produce like a hundred tons of pollen in a year. It's a lot wow. comes off, and that that bath of pollen nutrifies the whole forest floor and gives it, you know, nourishment. So, um, but it's easy if you have pine trees in your area, you can go around. At least where we are, it's around June. But, you know, and it might be that around where, where various people are. Between May and July is when you're most likely to find pine pollens. Hmm. And you just flick them until you see a little yellow dusting coming off. And that's when you can harvest the pollen. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention this quickly. I, there, you, you have a video on, uh, on your YouTube channel of, of you going around and harvesting uh, pine pollen, which is really uh, fascinating and very entertaining. So I encourage people to go take a look at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, that's that's a fun one. That's what we call edutainment, right? Is those YouTube videos where we have that, like, let's um, be entertained and educated. Again, it's a delivery mechanism. 
it's an easy way for us to pick up herbal medicine is by seeing with it, you know, and that used to be the apprentice method. We now no longer have the apprentice method in schools where we're pretty much conformed to learning from books and lectures, which is a little different from apprenticing. And so, Mm. you know, some of the, and I would recommend that there's lots of other good YouTube channels. Ours is really fun. We've got, you know, 80 videos or so on it, but there's lots of other ones where we can learn a ton of information. Yeah. That's great. Well, speaking to the pollen discussion, I'm interested what your take is on why certain people have allergies to it. Is it going back to what you talked about, uh-huh. this being out of balance? It, it is kind of, if you go back to a deeper level, um, what most allergies are. Now, there are some that are just like straight up from when I was born, but um, and that, that might also be back to an deeper level where, um, you know, I'm going to take us back to a theory of you are a donut. So I know that sounds weird, but we all are donuts. We all are this modified donut structure, which means our inside, in our lips, between our lips and our bum, that's the hole in our donut. And just how plants might, care, might live in soil, we carry our soil inside our donut, in the middle of it. That's where we have our soil, which is our gut bacteria. These are considered our 10,000 line our metabolism. They're our real immune system is our gut bacteria. What happens, and what's happened over years now of um, degrading the quality, not the quantity, but the quality of these gut bacteria, i.e. losing some of the species, almost like um, similar to how we've cut down forests, we've done the same thing inside our gut. We've also put in a lot of pro-inflammatory foods, which are agitating the gut lining. And so how this relates to allergies is that that agitation of the gut lining and the lack of good flora has caused somewhat leaky gut, somewhat inflamed, agitated states where we get things into the body. This creates a lot of our autoimmune-type disease states or imbalances. And allergies happen to be one of those where often something is triggering this heightened state. So we may not be able to prevent, say, the cottonwood blossoms from blooming and causing us allergies, but we can help deal with our own internal state. So if it takes me 100 points to get an allergy response from a pollen, say, Mm -hmm. for example, um, I can actually deal with 50, 60% of that. The other part might be the pollen itself, but I can start to build back and heal my gut flora and my immune system that way, as well as I can look at other things that might be causing slight inflammation in my body or in my system. So do I have dust in my house? Do I have old carpets? Do I have um, mites? Do I have things like that? Am I um, using synthetic cleaners? Am I washing my hands too much? Mm. No, there's more bacteria and other organisms than you are human by cell count. So you are an ecosystem. You're not really a human. You might think you are. But really, I'm mm-hmm. telling you, you're a donut, and you're an ecosystem donut, covered in sprinkles. <laughs> so they're all around you, and when we get sensitive to them, and when we get more heightened inflammation from allergens, it's often a response to um, our agitated system. And this might be something we've started with in our life, and that might also have a relation back to our ancestry of agitation, in that sense of our parents and 
the coming before that. We call that epigenetic, which is something learned through the generations. And this is where we're coming to a big condition in our society is this inflammatory, agitated lack of good quality and diversity of gut flora and organisms that live on and in us. Hmm. You know, we went through a huge stage of antibacterial, antifungal, antiviral, everything. Well, guess what? That's anti-life. That's not actually mm-hmm. pro-health. So my recommendation is that you look at trying to build back the good bacteria that you need, and they will help defend you from the back, bad bacteria that you might be trying to fight. Hmm. So what do you think is the best source of that bacteria? Is it taking probiotic supplements or fermented foods a better way to go? Or? Well, uh, fermented foods are by far a better way to go in the sense of probiotics are kind of like, if you can imagine a whole bunch of um, culture-grown, we'll call them, I like to use the analogy of people as um, our gut ecology. So I like to think of probiotics as the yuppies. I like to think of parasites <laughs> as the mobsters and candida and other funguses as the gangsters in the, in the gut, right? So we've got this big gang warfare going on right now where we might have a lot of candida and a lot of parasites. We've got mobsters and gangsters that colonize the majority of our gut. And we can't grow back those condos where those yuppies can live in the, the good mm-hmm. probiotics. When we take a probiotic supplement, we're sending in these, you know, yuppies that have been stripped from their food source, whipped around a centrifuge, stuffed in a little capsule, and stored on a shelf for a year before we put them in our body. Mm-hmm. These are really wimpy, domesticated yuppies that don't know how to fend for themselves <laughs> in the gang-filled neighborhood. So in that sense, that's not really, you could send 10,000 yuppies in and they're going to get robbed and mugged and taken advantage of. Um, because if, if we send in a few, you know, street savvy, built-in food source, backpack, ramble commando yuppies who have what they need to make it in this harsh terrain, then they have a better chance. And that's what probiotics coming from prebiotic foods like the um, cultured foods and ferments. Um, the reason the name culture is culture. So cultured foods are fermented foods, and every culture has their form of fermentation, their culturing, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, we've lost some of that. Partly that's due to fridges. Refrigerators have given us this, oh, it's easy. You know, we just put it in the fridge and it lasts for a long time. We also have a lot of preservatives and additives. Hmm. But Traditionally, we didn't have this. So how did we survive for hundreds of thousands of generations where we didn't have fridges? Well, things fermented. And we, we learned how to deal with fermentation as part of our, our natural foodscape, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some great books on fermentations. One of my favorite is Wild Fermentations by Sandor Katz. Yeah. He is just awesome. He really puts it into a simple one. He's also mastering fermentation. I forget who that's by, but it's another great, easy way we can do this in our lives really simply. And uh, I'll just, you know, touch on like Acidophilus bifidus, those cultures, they are some of the most powerful bacterial cultures out there on the planet. You put them in a Petri dish with Candida or E. coli or Staphylococcus or any of these other things, they will gobble them up and dominate the environment. You are symbiosed with a powerful, powerful ally on the bacterial level, you just need to feed it the right things, mm. and it will do the job for you. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's great. Fascinating. 
So, you know, and so in that sense, prebiotic foods are also really important, not just ferments, but what we call prebiotics, more than probiotics. And those are the foods for the acidophilus cultures. And those are kind of what we call medium chain, um, kind of medium chain polysaccharides, these kind of middle, middle ground um, sugars that take a lot longer to break down, but also um, are, are there as food for that environment. So even things like oatmeal, you know, there are issues with inflammation in oatmeal. You might want to spread it first, um, but grains in general are not really our best friend. Mm-hmm. They're kind of mm-hmm. the enemy to a degree because we didn't grow up with a gut bacteria that ate a lot of grains. Now, if we were from south or southern kind of or Middle Eastern or African descendant, we might deal with grains a little better. Whereas coming from a northern European descendant, my body does not deal with grains that well. We just never had them. No. It was just not part of the foodscape. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that on the show, actually, the um, the problem with uh, relying an over-reliance on grains in, uh, in the diet. Um, and a lot of us have actually eliminated them altogether to uh, good results. Yeah, like you do good with things like yams and turnips, you know. Those are, yeah. those are good starch sources. Yeah, root vegetables. Mm-hmm. The root vegetable stews. And this time of year is perfect. So that's another thing is that, like, being in the seasons, this is the perfect time of year for that root vegetable stew. It's just, oh, your body craves it. Mm-hmm. I start to wean myself off of salads at this time of year. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I no longer need salads. In fact, I'll go most of the winter eating very few salads. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just stews and broths and root vegetables. Well, I, I sure. have a question about you. About um, Well, I went to a an herb class some years ago, and after that I kind of went a little herb crazy, and I was uh, looking into teasel because one of the teachers at the class was mm. talking about teasel and how it's good for Lyme disease. Do you have any experience mm-hmm. with using teasel root? Yeah, teasel is an interesting. Well, let's go back to a doctor and a signature or a doctor of correspondence. Teasel has these mm-hmm. little basins on the leaves, and these little basins produce almost a sweet flavor. Mm-hmm. And so they hold water. The name of it is Aphrodite's Basin, I think it is. Or maybe it's Venus's Basin. It's one of those, is a common name for it. Um, and they hold a little bit of water, and it attracts bugs because it's sweet. And then the bugs fall into the water and they die and they break down and the plant uses the nutritive from the bugs as part of its nourishment. Hmm. So hmm. this is a little bit of a correspondence on how something like that might have an effect on a thing like lime, you know, because again, it's, um, it's digesting that kind of, and lime being that bacterial thing, um, and those kind of like sneaky hidden, uh, um, pathogenic, kind of functions that we can't really um, get rid of. It's interesting that we have a somewhat predator plant, not like a Venus flytrap, but actually like eats it, but something that's created a little basin and a subtle medicine. Um, I, I really like teasel. I think it's got a beautiful, it's a beautiful plant. And I know that um, it's been used pretty heavily with the lion community. But I think that there's mm-hmm. a lot more than just teasel. It's kind of it's sort of like um, 
kind of are saying like, oh, the radio show is host is only good for a radio show, or like that. They're putting herbs into one category mm. um, instead of giving them like a little broader spectrum. I, I'm pretty sure that Tivo helps kind of help the body be a little more protective and give it some of those those nutrient um, protein type compounds, that, similar to how it digests the bugs. But I don't think that it's mm-hmm. only something that we get for for um, Lyme. And I also think that there's probably a lot of other herbs that will help benefit the Tivo's ability and make it work better mm-hmm. if it's in conjunction mm-hmm. with those. So we like to think of herbs as liking to be in community, i.e. they're less functional on their own, but they're more functional in a group together. Mm-hmm. So I'll, um, you know, so I would say with the Tivo, I'd want to put a bunch of other herbs that are going to have more of that what we call immunomodulating, which is to help mm-hmm. build up the immune response and not just stimulate it, because we don't want to stimulate it in this sense. Mm-hmm. We're having a bit of an immune hack, so we want to modulate it so it functions better. So, you know, I might put it with things like the ashwagandha, or another one that's commonly used for those is um, sarsaparilla is a common one, smilax mm-hmm. that's used in the land. And I know that um, there's a great author, Steve, talks a lot about some of the lime herbs mm-hmm. and it's it's great what he has to share about that but mm-hmm. but those kind of like tonic um what we call adaptogenic herbs are going to have some of the best function with that but then i might also take some of the endocrine balancing things like seaweeds i might add in a little bit of like a bladder rack or something to help balance the metabolism that gets into effect in that situation as well as I might mm-hmm. take some of the medicinal mushrooms to help bring that body back into function too. And these medicinal mushrooms are a real powerful ally for some of these deeper debilitating diseases where we can't necessarily pinpoint the problem of it or the cause of it. And that's kind of one of the issues with things like Lyme is people don't always believe people that there's even anything wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? Can't you just, you know, get up and go <laughs> like the rest of us? Yeah. And they can't. Um, whereas taking things like the medicinal mushrooms can help bring them back into a little more, get the immune system to a little stronger space where it can actually fight off this thing that they have to um, continually be tired from battling all day long and all night long. Mm. Well, speaking of using herbs in combination with each other, so in nature, um, herbs that grow close to each other, would those be ones like complementary to each other? Aha, that sounds like a good idea, a good thought. <laughs> you got it. I mean, yeah, for sure. I think that's that's often can be part of that coming that coherence into that flow of, hey, these things that grow close to each other can work together or seasonal herbs that be similar, you know, like I might do a burdock, dandelion, chicory, for example, and they might all grow in the same area. Mm. Nice, great mm-hmm. morning coffee substitute um, to drink, you know. Yeah. Uh, or, so yeah, often herbs that grow in the same areas, but also what I like to think of, and this is part of the Chinese method of blending, is that we're creating a family of herbs um, that are going to have a specific function. So we're going to have a chief or like a little, a chief of the herbal formula, which is going to be that one major predominant herb that's going to 
be sort of a like, okay, guys, we're going in this direction today. But then we don't want to just like a lot of herbal formulators throw in every other Rambo herb that's kind of like that one. <laughs> and it's not necessarily a very good approach because, you know, you send all these like big, powerful herbs. Again, I'll use a people metaphor into a bar and they're going to get into a bar fight because there's all the other, you know, whereas you say you need to have a soothsayer or somebody who's going to like, oh, it's all good. Don't mind my friends. You know, they're just a little rough around the edges. So you want some gentle, what we call demulcent, which is sort of anti-inflammatory soothing herbs. But then you also want to make sure you have, when you're combining herbs, something that's going to be what we call a delivery mechanism or a stimulating like herb, which is going to help get the blood flowing. So I often use herbs like ginger or cayenne or cinnamon or pepper um, as a great example of spicy, moving uh, delivery herbs. So they'll help get all the other herbs to the part of the body they got to go. So you want to start combining when you start doing that, formulating various aspects that might not necessarily have to do with the specific thing you're even working on, but they're going to help offset the roughness of the powerful herbs you're putting into that formula. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you're looking at different herbal um, combinations, it's not necessarily that you want to like kind of like, okay, I looked up all these herbs and they all have antibacterial properties and I'm trying to deal with a bacterial infection. Therefore, I'll take this one that has all the heavy hitters in it. So it's more, maybe exactly. more, yeah, more, more uh, beneficial to kind of take something that has, has some, some other herbs that might not address the problem directly, but maybe will have some sort of synergistic effect. That's right. That's good formulating, you know, in that sense. Um, you know, and so, yeah, those antibacterial herbs are pretty inflammatory some of them you know they're mm-hmm. heavy hitters they're the big anti-life like i said all the anti-parasitic antibacterial antiviral they're all slightly anti-life and mm-hmm. so they're heavy hitters and so you might want something that's more soothing for the immune system mm-hmm. you know we get formula that i like that's called radio protec and it's really a helpful emf type formula and working with the fact that we're on screens and going through a lot of uh, radiation, um, electronic toxicity in our world right now. Mm. But one of the big herbs that I put in, it's near the end, is catnip. And the reason I do is I put it in to help calm people down who think they need an EMF formula. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's mm. kind of a, a one of those like um, coyote medicines that's like, you know, um, usually these people are, are going to be, one, a little bit height, heightened sensitive, but they also might be conspiracy theory type Mm. energy where it's like, oh, the universe is out to get me or society is out to get me. Mm. So catnip is a herb that helps calm down the nervous system and our anxiety, mm. more our anxiety around EMF radiation than anything. And all the other herbs are going to work on that area. But if I don't put that one in, um, it, it, it doesn't have quite the same benefit. Mm. That's brilliant. So, you know, so we also always want to try to treat our mental, emotional, spiritual angst as much as our physical condition. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I had a a quick question about uh, comfrey. I was looking up some of your material online, and I see something here called Getting Comfy with Comfrey. And uh, I was just wondering, um, I've seen some material in the past talking about the benefits of the leaf versus the root, and we had mentioned that briefly earlier. 
is there is there one that should be used as opposed to the other, or do they both have kind of equally potent uses? Um, I've noticed in the past that comfrey root seems to kind of activate a little bit more when it's put into hot water. It kind of gets a little more foamy, and I wondered if that was an indication of its potency um, or if you could just speak to that a little bit. Great, yeah. So that's, you know, um, well, you should just watch the video. No. <laughs> but, anyway, no. Um, but, but I do talk a little bit about that in that video. Um, well, I just want to just touch in quickly on comfrey as this is one of those taboo plants where we've been told not to take this internally because it has something called paralyzidine alkaloids in it, which can affect the liver negatively, and there have been people who have had major issues because of this. So just as a, like, that's the sort of pre-warning on that herb, um, people have been taking it for a long period of time. It has been used internally for a long history, but one of the big issues on what happened is people are seeing that it has like 35% protein by weight in the root. So all of a sudden in the 70s, the new fad was comfrey root protein. You know? <laughs> so people are consuming huge volumes of this plant and having real negative effects. Mm. Again, out of balance. We didn't know that until people started, you know, healing over <laughs> from liver toxicity. And then all of a sudden, throw it out, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. That's the backstory on comfrey a little bit. Um, but yeah, the root of comfrey has more of those mucilaginous gelling compounds. And so it definitely gets more foamy. It's much stronger of a medicine. So we may want to, knowing the backstory, that it has higher paralyzing alkaloids, we might want to use the leaf a little more readily because we can feel a lot safer with the leaf. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that's crazy about this plant, and I'll go back to the doctor's signature thing, is that you put a rototiller, screw comfrey, and it rototills it all into small pieces. Every single one of those small pieces grows a new plant. Huh. So so it's that's a real good correspondence to... Um, you know, this is the cell proliferance, which is, means how to reproduce new cells, how to keep growing. Hmm. how comfrey is such a miracle herb for us, is that it, it, it can help us heal wounds like crazy, double the speed of cell growth. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there's miracle talk about, you know, someone in the forest with a broken leg and they strap comfrey to themselves and boom, they walked out of the forest. <laughs> um, <laughs> So there's all these kind of interesting stories that come along with that plant. I would say in an emergency situation, that root is going to be far more powerful than that leaf. Mm. Um, but just to be cautious that you're going to also have higher concentrations of these alkaloids. But these are the same kind of alkaloids that are things like foxglove, which is, as Alex is one of the major heart medicines we use in pharmaceutical medicine, but it's like in very, very, very minute amounts. Taking foxglove, in any more like a drop is is highly toxic and highly full of these same kind of alkaloids that affect the liver. Mm. 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 Well, that, that, that kind of leads me to uh, Totally, yeah. Well, the other thing I was wondering about is actually I have a comfrey plant um, that's been living in the mm. same uh, pot for about six years now, and it's amazing. I mean, we get really brutal winters where I live, and every spring it comes back and it gets really big, and it just keeps growing and growing no matter how many leaves I take off. So I was wondering if it would be yeah. beneficial to um, – would it be, you know, 
positive or negative to harvest the root from that plant, or should I just kind of let it keep going and keep using the leaves? Well, you could literally pull that plant out, wash every root off, strip them down to small pieces, put them in new pots, and you'll have tons of comfrey. <laughs> oh, wow. Powerful, cool. we call how much chi, how much, like, vital energy is in that root. It's a strong root. So, yeah, you'd be fine to harvest some of the root off of that plant. No problem. In fact, you might cool. want to just to break it up, just break it open, put it in a couple pods, and then give one to a friend. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, good idea. Yeah. yeah, it's a good one, and and check out the comfy comfy with comfy video. It's kind of a fun one. Hmm. But there's also lots of other other good information on this. And I think another concept I wanted to put in is a brain hook. That um, the age of information is dead. People keep going back to the information, back to the information. It's actually a dead age. It's an old paradigm. It's dinosaurs. We're now in a new age, and that is the age of conception. How can you conceive of the ideas and the questions and have the imagination and the vision to find the answers? Because every bit of information is there. Mm-hmm. All this information on herbs, quick Google search, and you can get tons of it. And if not, if you're really into it, you want to look up some of the old books and get a little more information on it. But all these questions that we all have, they can all be answered. And we don't need to store the information in our brains anymore. We just need to know how to come up with the right questions to ask. Hmm. So I just put that brain hook in for, for listeners that, like, you know, stop using your brain to store information. Use it to conceive new ideas, have original thought, get out and connect with nature in a way that you can relax the mind and really think about what it is you want to do in your life and how you want your life to flow and where you can find those answers. Because storing information no longer functions for us, if we want to move forward in this paradigm that we're in right now, uh, it's going to take a lot of work to move this planet back into balance or coherence, as we call it. And it needs a lot of us to stop storing information and start coming up with real questions and real vision and real creative ways of answering those questions. Wow. That's, that's kind of one of my main things I feel right now is that forget about the information age. All hmm. this information is awesome. But it's all available if you know how to find it. Yeah. You yeah. don't got to hold on to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, speaking of that, I, I don't know. This I'm making connection in my brain here. I don't know. Uh, this might be getting into a bit of wacky territory. But um, I read uh, Stephen Harrod Buhner, uh, his book, um, uh, what's it called? The, the Secret Teaching of Plants. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, which was a fascinating book. Um but he talks about in that um, the, the the way of kind of communing with plants, that there's kind of this, uh, we have this kind of lost um, ability to kind of, uh, you know, he, he actually goes into a scientific explanation of it, that the, the heart is actually a sensory organ and able to kind of uh, pick up uh, electromagnetic uh, frequencies and things that, we, that we're not necessarily conscious of on a, our more logical mind um, doesn't really uh, to tap into at all. Um, so he talks about this this kind of method of communing with plants, where you can kind of actually almost like um, like speak to them in some way and, and find out um, a plant that actually you you know might need in some way, and that it can tell you how you can use it, and all these other kinds of things. I'm just wondering if you like you know because you are so close to the natural world and and do kind of uh, uh, deal with plants so much, have you ever kind of had any kind of experience with this? 
For sure. I mean, I think, I think, um, first off, I just want to say if, if any of you are interested in, in that type of work, Stephen Harry Buner is definitely a forerunner, forethinker on this kind of mm. type of material where it is that connection back to plants. And this is also how native peoples would have learned a lot of the plants. When Western people came over, like, how do you know this? Well, the plant spirit told me, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> was the common answer they got. And it, it has a little bit to do with slowing down. And um, we are just moving too fast to even hear what the plants are saying. Um, so it takes a bit of effort on our part and that means slowing down to the rhythm. Like you got to know that these things, they stay in one place and they go in one place for their whole life. Mm. They're not moving fast. They need us to slow down enough to hear them if we want to commune with plants. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like neurons that, um, well, fire together, wire together. It takes us a bit of time to get to this place where we're slowing down enough to connect with plants. And I'll give you a real simple, quick, easy, but um, long-lasting meditation you can do to really get to this place in a way. And that is find a plant spot. And this is something that another herbalist, Paul Bergner, taught me about, and I, I really like his work too, he's out of Oregon, um, was to like find a spot in nature, close to your home, in a natural setting, say a tree or something that's near you, that you can sit at that tree and then go to that place, you know, every week for a whole season, you know, every single week, or maybe even if you can, two or three times a week, and just sit in that one spot for 15 minutes, you know, do that. And, and you can live in the middle of a downtown bustling city, but you've got to park not too far from you, sit in that one spot. And just what I like to use is what's called wide angle vision there, where we slow down our perception and we open up our vision, instead of looking acutely at the direction we're trying to go, we think of moving our vision to the sides of our head, almost looking behind us, where we slow that down, and we just spend time, how does this plant connect to its natural world? Who are its friends? Who are the squirrels? Who are the various creatures that live in this area? And what plants are coming up at what times? So we watch the grass grow through the seasons. We watch it decline. We watch the snow come. We watch the rains fall. And we just start to observe the same level that that plant is observing at. So I like to find a tree and to go there at least once a week, the exact same spot. And it helps us kind of slow down our minds to perceive in a way that plants might perceive. Mm -hmm. I find that to be a really useful tool if we want to start to build our own ability to communicate with um, other organisms beyond the humans and the internet, <laughs> which is its own creature. <laughs> yeah. um, but if we want to start to communicate with other things on this planet. We need to slow ourselves down a lot. Hmm. And so, you know, other ways you can do that are just going for nature walks. And I like to go for a nature walk at 25% of the speed of my normal walking hmm. and use that same wide angle vision to kind of look right in front of me, but look to the sides on both sides and slow myself right down is another way we can start to connect with plant communication is just slowing down. So our, we're almost like our heart rate, our whole energy is kind of coming back into a sine wave with the energies of natural frequencies, natural cycles. You know, and I would like to say that most people who go for a walk in nature, 
they don't really have a destination they want to get to. They actually are there to do what we call forest bathing, which is to connect with the natural world. And so, you know, slow down. Take your speed at a quarter of the volume. You might think you're getting more exercise by running fast. You know, as you slow down, you have to control your muscles a little more effectively. And you have to control your thoughts. And it's actually a really good exercise and practice to start doing. So it's something I'm always trying to do because I have that, you know, slightly indigo child ADD mind that's moving fast. Mm-hmm. There's always connecting dots that are far beyond the horizon. So slowing down has been a huge meditation for me to help ground this kind of connection in and other things with plants and plant connection is give a piece of yourself and it might seem kind of weird but like I'll often give a hair and I'll leave it on a branch when I'm harvesting a plant Hmm. I'll leave one of my hairs or it might also seem weird but I'll take a fingernail and I'll bury it into the dirt beside the plants that I'm working with Hmm. Um, I might take a leaf and I'll mouth it I'll put my, my mouth all around it and allow my saliva to be on that leaf so that the plant gets to know who I am too. It's not just me trying to hear the wisdoms of the world from the plant. Mm. It's building a relationship. Yeah. So how do we build a relationship with the natural world again? Wow. That's very oh, cool. That's fascinating. Those are all things anybody can do. It's just wanting to build a relationship. Yo, we have uh, our our resident um, pet health expert, uh, Zoya, on the line, and she had some questions she wanted to ask you about herbs and uh, pets and animals and the relationships there. So um, let's turn her on for a minute. Zoya, can you hear us? Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you good. Yeah, can hear you loud and clear. Yeah, Hello. So, first of all, I wanted to thank you for all the wealth of information because it's incredibly interesting and very important. And it, it's especially important for me because I'm a, a veterinary student and we do study about herbs and how it applies to animal medicine. So, I would greatly appreciate mm-hmm. if you, you could help me help answer some of the questions that I have, if it would be possible. Okay. So... The first one is that, uh, well, it appears that just like for humans, many herbs are very beneficial for animals too. In fact, it means that Mm -hmm. animals possess a natural ability to find just a plant that can make them feel better. Uh, So the first question would be, did you have an opportunity to observe health benefits of various plants on pets? Yeah, well, one of the lucky things for me is that we, we run a herbal dispensary here. And um, so we have some various veterinarians that actually work with the plant medicines that we provide. So I do get some good examples, although I don't have so many like personal examples where I'm um, working with specific pets. Um, I do get lots of examples of people who are using them. So um, some of the good ones that are easy and gentle are things like your anti-inflammatory herbs like turmeric. Now, turmeric is mm-hmm. a great one for, for, for like inflammation of a lot of animals. Um, and also some of the super greens, like spirulina and stuff like that. These are very nutritive, and often in a lot of the animal foods, um, they're not so savvy for that. And you get a lot of inflammation and a lack of nutrition sometimes. So things like 
turmeric and spirulina might be great um, things that animals can, can work with. But you're right, you do see a lot of animals finding their own medicine. So a lot of dogs will eat grass. I see mm-hmm. that. I see dogs eat grass all the time. And I think a big part of that is for them to try and um, give, give a bit more cleaning to their gut so that they're moving through the body, a little more fiber to the foods that they're eating and help cleanse. Grass has a lot kind of cleansing properties. So it's got those soluble and insoluble fibers in it. Um, other things though to note that I would just really be cautious of with with animals is that some animals have uh, their nervous system wired the opposite. Hence why catnip makes cats spazzy and us calm down. You know, Valerian is <laughs> the same thing. We calm down and cats get so be careful using him to cut too much when it comes to things that are gonna affect our nervous system because you might have the opposite effect <laughs> that you don't have Well, do you have other examples of uh, certain herbs that may have an adverse effect? So I missed a little bit of that, but um, I do have some other examples of uh, probably the most um, used that I've seen veterinarians use is some of the medicinal mushrooms. Mm -hmm. I've found those to be now, one of the things is that a lot of our pets don't live as long as us, so mm-hmm. they do get more cancers and tumor systems before we do. Um, so I've seen a lot of good results from doing like a multi-mushroom blend, like a uh, three to five to six to 14 mushrooms in combination um, as a powder. So that could be put into foods. I found that to be really beneficial for adults or for adult animals and aging animals. We have a dog that we just put a little bit of that in sometimes just as a, a preventative. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also work with a medicinal mushroom powder blend and that's something that is really really quite beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. One thing to note with mushrooms is that they have a more similar DNA structure to us than um, plants do. So we have a much closer kin to them they get similar diseases and pathogens, and they help bring us back into balance. So for pets, the, the big thing is that they're quite small compared to us often, so we want to use size proportionate volumes. But medicinal mushrooms are quite safe, so we can take pretty good amounts, give them a half a teaspoon in, in food, and that might be things like the ration mushroom, the cordyceps, chaga, turkey tail, lion's mane, um, shiitake, maitake, these are some of the medicinal mushrooms. In combination is going to be one of the most beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, other than um, nutritive, anti-inflammatory, and immune modulating plants and, and mushrooms, those are the main ones I'll work with for animals. Yeah, so, you know, like during uh, my studies, I learned that, for example, chamomile, calendula, the basic herbs that are good for humans are also, we use it often with animals. Uh, mm. so, so, yeah, like on, it's the same. on the skin or internally? Well, also internally, uh, like uh, chamomile yeah. is good topical application, you know, to disinfect the wound, uh, mm. you know, rinse the mouth. If there is a you know like some some sort of problem or skin problem, or calendula is yes. also 
very good. So yeah, it's it's pretty similar. But you know, for example, like for sure. even we can also use herbs like a digitalis or foxglove or even belladonna, okay. but in very very small amounts. That it's good for digitalis is good for heart. Yeah, very small amounts of those ones for sure. Well, the chamomile and the, and the calendula are both anti-inflammatory to the gut too. So you have that that anti-inflammatory. I mean. They have a very similar body structure to us, so mm-hmm. a lot of the herbs will work similarly. It's only that the nervous system is like reversed in cats. So, but um, um, yeah. So a lot of the herbs that work on us are going to work on them that same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also have a question: Do you think we can learn from animals by observing their behavior, particularly if they can teach us? about plants or parts of plants that may have medicinal properties? I, I think it's an es- more esoterical question, but here it goes, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you kind of know the answer to your question, that they can do that, you know? You know, the ability to sense things that we kind of have lost our sense of. So plants or animals can tell, you know, what are toxic plants, what are safe plants. They can seem to to tell that right off the bat. Um, and I do think that they will gravitate towards the that are going to be healing for them. It gives them that freedom. You know, if we let our dog off the leash <laughs> and to be able to, to connect in with those plants, they are going to do that. But you'll notice that they don't use plants all the time as, as medicine, similar to how we don't really need all the time to be taking various herbal supplements just when we come out of balance. And so when an animal is sick, they will go and seek out those plants. And that might be a good time for us to to start to observe them and find out what some of the plants are actually are. Mm-hmm. And that's not just our pets. That's also like livestock and other animals that we see in, in the natural world, too. Most animals, like at least herbivores, um, that we see in the natural world, we'll eat like 200 different plants in a day. Mm-hmm. They're just eating small amounts. And again, one is educating their, their body about how, you know, the world around them works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what would you, would you have any recommendation regarding uh, herbal medicine, uh, general recommendations, or basic herbs that good to have at home that uh, could be used to treat both humans and animals? What would be, you know, the basic set of... Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, when it comes to animals, I don't really like to use tinctures. You know, I don't find... I think that the alcohol is too strong for them, and I'd mm-hmm. rather see them use a tea or a broth. So broths, making like herbal broths, are something that are a great way to feed our animals nutritive tonic herbs. So these like really gentle herbs that are toning so most of the adaptogenic herbs like the um you know like the siberian ginseng ashwagandha astragalus um the reishi mushroom you might make a nice immune broth or um for us to drink and for our animals to drink so that's a great way i would like to bring herbs into the whole family health including mm-hmm. our our fur family as we might call them <laughs> yeah is to um, make big broths where we can all drink the same kind of super heavily enriched liquids, especially in the winter months where we've got 
that it's a little colder. Uh, there's a lot more bacteria and bugs going around. People are getting sick. Animals get sick too. Like our cats will start to sneeze. And I know we touched on aromatherapy before, and I'm not the biggest fan, but it is really can be useful for animals too. It's a little bit of um, like just a just a gentle ravensara or eucalyptus or lavender oil in the air around mm-hmm. the home. There's another way that can work um, with plants. And I know you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the calendula being, or the chamomile being helpful for bacteria in the mouth. Um, mm-hmm. So mouth rinses can be good that way. And sometimes you can add just a drop of essential oil in there to do that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If dogs or animals get, um, you know, an infection, a little bit of clove oil can be really good in, in for teeth infections. Mm-hmm. with cats and dogs. Um, again, you want to put it in the carrier oil, so you might put a little bit of clove oil and an olive oil and then rub that on the teeth and the gums. Same with gum infections. You might find things like myrrh, which is septic and has a mm-hmm. great ability to heal the gums. You might add a little bit of myrrh oil into that or myrrh, um, yeah, a little myrrh powder into an oil that we've made. Mm-hmm. So those are some ways. Um, as well as, you know, some of the ones I mentioned earlier, like the medicinal mushrooms or the powder, they're great for both humans and animals, especially during the fall months, you know. So you just mm-hmm. kind of put them in as a, as a tonic for that time of year. I'd also, you know, recommend any of the anti-inflammatory herbs, things that are anti-inflammatory. And again, I'd ask you to all Google search anti-inflammatory herbs and see what you come up with. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there are lots. And you can start to make a little blend that way for inflammation. A lot of animals get, you know, especially these domestic um, breeds that we have nowadays, they're not really like the wolf, the dogs anyway, like the wolf that they came from. So they get different like hip displacements and various um, issues where their bodies aren't necessarily the right shape and size for them to function perfectly. Mm-hmm. So, so working with some of those anti-inflammatories, essential fatty acids, that's a huge one, like fish oils. Um, there's a couple of good liquid fish oils now. You can get most animals do really well with a bit of essential fatty acids in their diet. So yeah. those aren't really herbal medicine, but they definitely are. They do wonders for the inflammation, inflammatory response mm-hmm. in the body of humans or animals. Oh. Uh- Okay, uh, thank you a lot about that. I just have one last question. It's a bit, uh, I don't know if you can answer it, but it's just, I'm very curious about it. You see, cats are, uh, lilies are very, you know, like lilies are very poisonous for cats. Lilies as a general flower. There are a lot of types of lilies. So I just wondered if you have a theory, you know, just speculate why lilies, you know, like when you talked about uh, specific properties of uh, plants, how they look like, or you know, so so I just wondered why why specifically lilies and not other plants are uh, flowers are poisonous for cats. I don't know. Did you say lilies? Lilies, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, why they're poisonous for for cats? Yeah, I just you know just a speculation. Do you have any idea? Yeah. I don't know. Like most lilies are actually safe for us. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I 
I um I wonder. I actually don't know answer that. I really <laughs> um but but uh, let's see let's, let's speculate a little bit here. Um yeah, no, I, I you know, I mean it's it's definitely probably not the pollen of them, but that's what they're attracted to. Um yeah, that's the interesting yeah, thing that they like to eat it. Uh, that's that's the thing that cats yeah. are usually better than dogs at oh. avoiding avoiding stuff that is poisonous for them. Usually, dogs uh, can you know like ending up eating a, a rat poison, mm-hmm. uh, while mm-hmm. cats will avoid it. Well, I, I wonder if it, it's probably a liver. The effect is our liver. The first place it goes, and um. Uh, they also have a much smaller liver than us, but you know those are like probably because they taste good and they're a nutritive plant in that sense. They taste pretty yummy. Um, <laughs> so their sensory perception, like their taste buds, tell them that it's safe, but it's obviously not. <laughs> so, so almost they're being fooled by their own sense of of safety. Yeah, that would be you know my speculation. That they think it's safe for them as well, and that um, mm-hmm. it's probably some kind of liver alkaloid, some kind of alkaloid that's affecting the liver. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I think without knowing the the answer to that, I'd speculate like what is a toxic alkaloid, and they have a smaller liver, um, that it would be probably in huge volumes. They would be hard on our body too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we just are so much bigger and aren't going to eat, like, hundreds of lilies. Well, maybe it also has to do, well, I'm just thinking about it, that if it has a liver alkaloid, maybe it can, you know, like some cats can eat it and there will be no effect, but if their health is jeopardized or liver is already compromised, maybe that's right. how they get get poisoned. Maybe that, that has to do well, with I'm... liver not being able to... You know, like to deal with it, to digest it. Yeah. Which a lot of cats end up with a bit of a fatty liver from the food that we feed them. Mm-hmm. They're not. We don't feed them mice and birds. We feed them this weird domesticated kibble, and yeah. that can Evil give them food. a fatty liver. <laughs> yeah, it makes it, it makes it so that their liver's not needing to function very much. So mm-hmm. it's like this what we call a fatty liver, which is almost like a lazy liver. It's not really. It's not actually, because um, the liver can regenerate real quickly, but if it gets lazy like that, where it's kind of a fatty liver, it no longer, it doesn't think it needs to regenerate. It just thinks it's fine, and that is not, because it's not really functioning properly. So that that could have something to do in a combination with the, the, the kibble. I bet if you had a wild cat, you know, who was outside eating a lot more barn mice or eating birds and things like that, they would have much less issues with that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much. It was really uh, interesting and mm. useful. And uh, I wish you a good day, you know. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for your questions. And, and good <laughs> luck treating um, animals naturally with um, plant <laughs> medicine. Thank you. Thanks for the work you're doing on that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thanks, Zoya. Great. Okay, well, I think this is probably a good uh, place for us to wrap up at this point. Yaro, this has been incredibly educational and uh, very entertaining. 
Thanks so much for uh, joining us. I think uh, mm-hmm. I think our audience got a lot of uh, really great information there. Well, thank you for having me. Um, as you can tell, I'm you know I'm pretty passionate about these topics, and I really think that part of the larger mission is to remind each other that um, we can come back into flow, and that it's not as hard as it seems, and that we are actually out of with our natural world. And part of that might be herbal medicine. Part of that might be just being to ourselves and connecting with plants and nature and the natural world around us. So I hope that this at least gives a few people out there some brain hooks and some ideas on how they can re-educate, relearn, rewild, reconnect with the world around them. Mm. Very well said. So if people want any more information or ways of connecting with Yarrow, um, you can check out his website, harmonicarts.ca. I also highly encourage people to check out his YouTube channel. Um, that is, the, I think it's The Harmonic Arts. Um, yeah. that, that's the username, right? Yeah. Um, great videos, really educational, very entertaining as well. Um, so thanks again, Yaro. This was great. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And um, thanks for doing the work that you guys are doing, you know, connecting people with natural health in the various formats. So yeah. appreciate everyone who's in service to this kind of larger mission of helping us heal one talk, one person, one thought at a time. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thanks, Yaro. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Yaro. Thanks a lot, Yaro. Okay, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. All right. Okay, listeners, Stop so we will be back again next week, uh, same time, Friday at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern time. Uh, and I encourage people to listen to the other Sot Talk Radio Network shows uh, tomorrow is the truth perspective, um, and that is at 2 p.m. Um, or sorry, yeah, that's tomorrow at 2 p.m. And then there is the behind the headlines show at 2 p.m. on Sunday. So we'll see everybody next week. Hopefully you tune in tomorrow and on Sunday. Have a good day, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye.